Fuego, Sebo Fuego. Greetings, everyone. Welcome to our Yohate Negasuna, The Road to Your Name podcast, focusing on Haudenosaunee cultural topics recorded on Haudenosaunee territory. Our podcasts are produced by Aboriginal Legal Services with the technical assistance of Humble Man Recording. My name is Lisa Venevery from the Mohawk Nation and the Wolf Clan. I'm the coordinator of the Yohate Negasuna Road to Your Name program and the host of this podcast. Welcome to the Ohate Negasuna Road to Your Name podcast series. If you would like to learn more about our organization, Aboriginal Legal Services, and the programs and services we provide, please visit us at our new website at www.aboriginallegal.ca. And if you feel inclined and would like to make a donation, you can click on the word donate located on the bottom of the page of our newly updated website. You can also visit us on Facebook at Aboriginal Legal Services Toronto, Canada. Haudenosaunee creation story, Sky Woman grabbed the wild strawberry plant when she fell through the hole in the sky and plummeted to this world. So our belief is that food is a gift from the Creator. Indigenous people have cultivated our relationship with food over thousands of years and have developed sophisticated ways of growing food, preparing food, and cooking food as we continue to participate in our relationship with food. It is a reciprocal relationship, which is initiated by the singing of seed songs by the women to the seeds prior to planting. The energy and vibration of our voices meet the energy of the seeds prior to planting and speak to them through this vibration, which is an integral part of the spiritual and growing process. Food was also a part of our medicinal system that was the foundation of our health care system. It was also a vital part of our ceremonial and social life. Today, it is the seed keepers in our communities who keep this relationship with our traditional foods strong. On this episode, let's meet Terry Lynn Brandt, Salazala from the Mohawk Nation and the Turtle Clan. She is a seed keeper in the community of Six Nations of the Grand River. Salazala can be found on the web at mohawkseedkeeper.com. Welcome, Terry Lynn. Sego. Sego. You're very busy, so I'm so glad (laughs) that you made time for, to chat with us for a little while for the podcast today. Um, Let's start with, how did you get started on your journey of seed keeping and gardening? Well, I guess I was fortunate enough to be born into one of what I would call the last subsistence uh, families on Six Nations. One of the very last people that made their entire living off the land, right? And uh, we can we started, you know, to see people branch out into different occupations. Pretty soon the occupations were taken over and slowly the far- family farms went. So my uncle was the last one to kind of run the family farm and to, he never left it. That was his, his whole occupation. So uh, as a young child, I had my grandparents, my grandma, my grandpa, my uncle, uh, my mom, my dad. Those people were my mentors and each one of them gifted me with just something a little bit different 
in terms of Indigenous agriculture and learning that the, inspired me enough because what ended up happening was is that I never realized it, but they were identifying my gift. Mm-hmm. You know, and people often don't think of those tangible things that we do, like planting, as a gift because not everybody can do it. Not everybody wants to, you know, that like I can remember with my brothers and sisters being in the garden, being out there, you know, hot as heck, we were doing whatever when I was a kid. And, you know, dad saying, get this done, get this done, you know, and when you got that done, then everybody took off and went and played or whatever. I was the kid who would still sit there, right? I, I just loved being there. So um, that became my gift. And as I became older, I started to realize that. And when I retired from teaching, which was an occupation I literally chose because I wanted to be able to continue my farm in the summer, right? Mm-hmm. Cause, so I never interrupted that. So I wanted an occupation where I could make sure I could be out in the fields. So that's what I went and did. And um, it then when I got to the end of my career, I'm sitting there a couple of years before I retired. Now what am I going to do? I don't got to come here every day. And then I thought, well, I want to go back to my passion, which is gardening. So I started a little bit of a garden club, and now it's just kind of morphized into this huge thing that I do today. (laughs) (laughs) Well, how large is it now? Well, um, what what has blown up, I guess, even more is is the uh, notoriety of it, Mm -hmm. I would want to say, which is directly involved in people's interest in food today. Um, that's what's gone crazy and blown up. Uh, and finally, because I've had an opportunity, I've been selected a few times to represent Indigenous people of Canada at the United Nations level. And through them with the IICA, which is the Inter-American um, Coalition on Agriculture, it's like the leading authority on agriculture for the Americas, North America, South America, Central America. You know, through those kinds of connections and people I've met, I've been able to... Um, have my eyes opened wider to be able to connect with other indigenous farmers just like me in different different parts of of the of the world, and uh, that has really um, helped. So by doing doing that, that kind of um, and speaking out, and just saying, "Hey, what I'm doing's okay." No, don't be. And I often, so many times, I give my head a shake, and I think, you know, one time my dad said um, we were talking and. I had asked him a question about germinating and something I was having trouble germinating. And he said, he told me something to do. So I went home and I tried it. And he was right. I said, what the heck? How do you know that? <laughs> and then so I says, Dad, it worked. And he looked at me like, you know, yeah. And then he said, well, I was the head germinator, you know, when I was eight years old at the mush hole. <laughs> and I thought, eight, wow. year, eight years old, you were the head germinator at the residential school. And then I kind of, I didn't. I had a tear in my eye, but I wanted, like, he was very proud of that, that he mm-hmm. knew, because he loved agriculture, too. You know, aside from the fact that the residential school was basically using him as slave labor yeah. to produce plants, because he says they'd go on the street in the markets, and he, they'd see all of their plants that they germinated and started being sold by all the nurseries in Brantford, mm-hmm. right? You know, so that's how their work was being used, mm-hmm. you know? And then later on, I said, well, what'd you learn at the, at the Mohawk? And he says, how to plant corn. I said, what do you mean how to plant corn? He goes, I don't know. They said we, we didn't plant it right. Mm-hmm. You know, and that always stuck with me. Mm-hmm. So I truly believe even though we had contact with the Europeans, the Europeans didn't really know our way, our systems, and they weren't really that great. They had the plow and that was about it. You know what I mean? They weren't that much more advanced in agriculture. 
either when they when the settlers came over, but the real onslaught to indigenous agriculture came through the residential school system, mm-hmm. because that's the part of of our society and our and our development as nations and as people and as passing on knowledge. That's when it was cut, and people often think, oh, we lost the language, the like. We lost a heck of a lot more than that, you know. Mm-hmm. We lost the very way of how we fed ourselves and mm-hmm. the seeds that I, you know, because soon, like my dad was taught, this is the way you do it. And you don't do it right, you get a, you know, you get a stick across the back, mm-hmm. you know. So he was taught the way you learned on the reservation, now you're up here. We don't do it that way no more, you yeah. know. So that was really uh, always sticks there in the back of my mind, you know. Yeah, and and um, the philosophy of... of um, gardening is so different in the western world and i always find like no matter what you're talking about um in the western world they always seem to miss the um the vital component of spirituality can you talk a bit about the spirituality in gardening yeah um well one of the things that we remember or we think we need to understand is that indigenous people are keen scientists. They're very keen observers of their environment. Mm-hmm. And you have to be when literally I got a stick and a rock and that's what I'm using to garden 10 acres of corn with. Cause that's how big some of these um, archeological sites were, mm-hmm. right? Huge fields, mm-hmm. 200 acres was nothing to find a field back in ancient times. So, and these people did it with a rock and a stick, right? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, going back in time and thinking about that connection, the wind, uh, the earth, right? The fire and the water. Those are our, are the way we think of them in our indigenous side. Okay. Well, and then if we have to cross that over so that the not the settler can understand, well, that earth is represented by the soil, right? Which is a solid, like for the really far end of the settler scale. I don't know mm-hmm. if I'm putting that right, but you know, mm-hmm. it's it's the solid. Okay. The water is still the water, but it's also the liquid, right, in the science world. So it goes mm-hmm. over here. The wind itself is air, right? That's how the Europeans think of it. It's, it's air, but it's also a gas to them. Mm-hmm. And then if we look at um, the fire, we say, which is basically is our sun, our sunlight, right? Mm-hmm. But it is our, um, what would you call it, is our... form of energy mm-hmm. right so when you have a solid liquid and a gas at this end and earth wind fire and <laughs> at that end so you can see that how those two things like what the heck are they talking about so one is looking at our world from this very fine tiny minute microscopic individual level mm-hmm. and this level is looking at the earth it's looking at the wind and the way it blows right you know what I mean? So yeah. we look at more in this indigenous spiritual side, we're looking at a, a more with softer eyes. We're looking kind of at everything that we're seeing. Here, we're looking more microscopic eyes. So in our spirituality, we're, you know, we're not trying to cut it all up. We're just trying uh-huh. to see how do these things, like if you watch the wind blow across the waters, like after the storm we've just had, watch the wind or what, you know, wherever that wind goes, that's where that water's going, both mm-hmm. above the ground and below, mm-hmm. right? Water and wind run the same way. It's just mm-hmm. the way the laws work, mm-hmm. you know. So when we understand that balance and our connectedness, when we put that, we choose to put our tobacco where the where the water starts and then let it flow down. 
we don't just put it anywhere. We, we choose our place to put it. Mm -hmm. Same thing with it. We all we make choices there. So our relationship to those four basic elements is very important. It's very soft. It's very global, because we strive to be one of those elements, right? Mm -hmm. We don't try to be ever just to be the way in a scientific world or a Western world kind of thinks it's above those things, mm -hmm. right? So that's how I kind of describe that so that it gets it back to the level of my gardeners. Look at those four elements. That's what you need to learn and study and observe and make that part of you. So that's what you need to do in your, in your garden. Mm -hmm. And, and also, um, one of the most beautiful things I think in, in Haudenosaunee, um, culture is singing to the seeds. <laughs> yeah. That's so beautiful. Yeah. Uh, this, well, singing in any culture is beautiful, okay? And, and the thing about even the word singing and the word, the word for the word, the word for song, the word for prayer in our indigenous language all have the same base. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't matter if you're talking or you're singing or whatever, it's considered a prayer, mm -hmm. right? It's, it's the way you speak. That's why our indigenous people are supposed to take your time when you speak, think about what you're going to say, and make sure you're saying good words. Yeah. You're always being positive because that's the vibe that you need to always put out into the environment. So when we're singing in our songs, we're trying to be positive in a best, better way to give it a little rhythm, to personalize it to ourselves. Because when we write our own seed songs, as they're called, or with the men, they're called the Adunwa songs. If we, when we write our own, it's usually reminiscent about something that's really important to us. Mm -hmm. That's about us. Right. And we share those songs. You'll hear more and more like there's some that are kind of public domain now. Like they've been sung by so many times. Nobody can even remember who sang them originally. But mm -hmm. your personal seed songs, generally, you'll only hear them sung at the longhouse during ceremony, like seed mm -hmm. ceremony themselves. Or you might hear a woman singing it out in the seals. See, you know, but they're also the same basic songs that are used when we're pounding corn mm -hmm. or when we're using the metete and where you're or grinding corn or doing some of those uh, routine kind of what can be monotonous, but songs create rhythm. And that's what seed songs do. They help us create rhythm to get through the job we got to do and mm -hmm. just to keep us moving steadily. So mm -hmm. we're healthier and, you know, it's just a better way to work. So mm -hmm. seeds are important. Um, and the more that we have, the, the better. Well, we're coming to the time of year now where um, you're getting to, going to be very busy, <laughs> getting ready for planting. So, talk about what your what your process is like. Well, you're right. We're getting to that busy. We're to, to me, it's a crunch year because uh, you have to don't forget that after we had midwinters, that acknowledges the beginning of the next year. Mm -hmm. Right. The season's starting. Right. Mm -hmm. So our prayers were been laid down. All of our mental health has should have been taken care of. Right. So we're not supposed to be in a state of mind that we're actually ready to move into our agriculture. Mm -hmm. That dark time of the year is to work on your mental health. You're not supposed to have to work on it in the sunlight because the sunlight can act naturally heal it. Right. So if you have to work on mental health, you're doing it on that half of the time. Right. On this time, we're into the light. So when we come into the light time, our first agricultural cycle is already just finishing, and that's the mm -hmm. maple syrup. Mm -hmm. And people often don't, but they have to get into their head, for the Haudenosaunee people at least, our cycles of agriculture 
are pretty varied. They're, they're almost like they go really long. And so even though we don't think of, of uh, gathering syrup as agriculture, it is. Mm -hmm. Right. There's some trees that have been growing. You might even plant some more yourself if you don't have enough, but you at least tend to your bush to try to keep it healthy, strong and good. And then you're keeping an eye on who's producing and who's not and what's going on. So there's the first one. And we've now come to the end. And it's really um, actually we were just finishing yesterday. And uh, but now we've come to the end. And it's my philosophy that to get ready for the gardening season, I have to watch that maple syrup season very much. Because by watching it, it is the first cycle of agriculture to come to the end. Whatever it does is going to be an indicator of how my season's going to go. And if you noticed, we were basically in a drought. This 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 locally has been a poor maple syrup season. Mm -hmm. You might have had the odd day. Oh, the sap was running good today. You might have had maybe three or four days in the whole couple of three weeks. Mm-hmm. right and that's what happens and the reason is because i i just stepped out into my garden uh wednesday of like this past wednesday sir and i started my forking and i'm looking jeez yeah because i wasn't getting sap there's some trees i wasn't really getting any sap at all from and i'm kind of mm-hmm. like yeah that's you know not that's kind of unusual you usually get at least a, a slow trickle mm-hmm. right and so it's because of that drought, the mo- there's not enough moisture in the ground because they're up on a ridge. It was up one of my maple bushes is up high above the creek because mm-hmm. um, that's where that kind of tree, particular tree likes to grow. Um, so I'm sitting there harvesting this and I'm looking and I'm putting my fork in and I'm moving and I'm like, holy crap, we're down. Like when I fork my soil, we're talking six to eight inches down and it was dry still. Mm. That should not be happening. That mm-hmm. should not have happened. It should still, like, we, I thought we had a lot of snow. <laughs> we had, you know, compared to recent winters, we've had a, we had a fair amount of snow. Yeah. So I expected to be the usual kind of half muddy when I'm forking, but it wasn't. It was dry as bone. Oh. So I was very thankful for this. So that just shows me we had, um, if you notice, it's like the, the winter this last time, we had these dramatic snowfalls. Yeah. Now we're having a dramatic amount of rain. Yeah. Where's the in between? Mm-hmm. And that's what the effects of climate culture, climate change is doing yeah. to our gardens and into our our earth. So by watching that, now I know I got to start to get my garden. I got to get it ready now. What am I going to do to prepare for the fact that I'm probably going to see, you know, about July a good drought here. Yeah. So I got to prepare the soil. I got to prepare the things. So in the, my first general step after we give thanks and things like that, my first step is to fork my soil, right? I don't mm-hmm. use, uh, try really hard never to use um, equipment, mm-hmm. right? The only thing I use is a fork to, and I don't even turn the soil. I just lift it, you know, and then I add my layers on top to it after that. So that's the first thing I'm doing right now is lifting it, which is I'm trying to get holes into that hard soil. The mm-hmm. hard clays, hard Six Nations clay, you know, we have. Mm-hmm. And that's important because we need those little wells so that the air and the water can get in between the soil because those are those basic elements, yeah. right? That soil, that basic earth, right? That solid. It needs the liquid. It needs that, uh, that water to be able to get in between the little molecules of soil. Mm-hmm. And if the air can't get in there, if the water can't get in there, then the roots of that plant can't grow. It can't inhale and exhale. And if it can't exhale, it, it can't create that little micro climate around itself to be able to produce the K2 
chemicals, like, you know, how we, what we breathe out is what the plant breathes in. Mm -hmm. It needs to create that by breathing that that's what helps create photosynthesis, mm -hmm. right? It's not just the sunlight. It's this little stuff that's happening in the air too. So all those things work together. Yeah. Right. Cause somebody just asked me the other day, what well, can you talk about water? Cause the world water day. I said, no, quit asking to quit separating our world. The more you separate our world, the more you take us another step away from who we are. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of what I'm doing is I'm looking at thinking about what I just experienced already. Yeah. And here's my normal first step. Now, what do I got to do? To, I might have to change step two now to get ready for yeah. what could be coming. Always thinking about it yeah. and what's going to happen. Mm -hmm. Well, I just have to really um, um, give thanks to the people in the community like yourself who do this, mm -hmm. who put the time in, because not, <laughs> not all of us have these gifts yeah. and have green thumbs, as they say. Mm -hmm. um, so what kinds of things do you grow mm -hmm. through the season? Well, I'm really, I kind of think back to that story of creation that she's learned about not too long ago mm -hmm. you know you'd learned about the corn and the beans and the squash and the potatoes you know and the tobacco and you know the thing the sixth sister who's always absent who's not there like I really don't like the term three sisters I really don't like it because mm -hmm. I think it's a Hollywood term I think somebody created it and I don't know who mm -hmm. but I don't think it was our one of us <laughs> and uh because for us there's never only been three that's right. Right? Mm -hmm. There's always been at least the five that we knew grew from Sky Woman, right? Mm -hmm. And there's always been that sixth, which is the green lusciousness of everything that we just have to go out and forage for mm -hmm. and grab and bring in. So that, that to me is really important that we acknowledge those, those things. And so generally speaking, which of the ones are not uh, generally found wild mm -hmm. anymore? are the mm -hmm. ones that I grow. Because if it's found wild, then I've been making part of the work that I do is I'm trying to reclaim space in my property to add species that do no longer exist. Mm -hmm. Okay. So one of the projects we're just starting, I'm working with a young forestry student and we're working on a um, Carolinian food forest. Mm, interesting. That will have only Carolinian tree species, shrubs and plant species. Right. And it will, the way it connects to the seed bank work, because I do a lot of corn varieties, I usually grow at least four varieties a year. And then I'll have a couple experimental plots hidden away, you know, so they can't cross pollinate. But is that eventually we hope that that place will be big enough and we'll have learned enough about how do we grow that crop? How hmm. does that thing, what does it need to do to get better? but then eventually to have it enough so that we can be able to take from it in a reasonable harvesting way and start to share it as if, if it was seeds, my corn seed from the seed bank. We should be able to share both of them, yeah. right? And so that's kind of what the dream for this food forest is. Mm -hmm. Not like to feed ourselves, but able to use it as a source. Because I don't know if you look around the reserve, there's a, Six Nations as a bush really is quite, uh, it's not, it doesn't have a lot in it. Mm -hmm. There's not a lot to forage for because a lot of the species have been dam damaged. A lot of them are sensitive. And a lot of the uh, newer businesses that we have coming up on Six Nations, a lot of the agriculture is unmonitored. Nobody's yeah. watching what they're doing. They're all saying, oh, well, we took a course. Well, yeah, that means you took a course because you needed the course to buy that chemical. Yeah. It's the only reason yeah. you took it. Yeah. Now, but who's watching how much you use yeah. and are you using it properly? 
Yeah, that's true. There needs to be more monitoring on the reserve for sure. Um, I don't know why there hasn't been over uh, these past years. It's it's a void because that's so important. And 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 the sad part of it is, um, like yesterday, I was I was looking on, it and it always makes me mad. I go and I look. Oh. You ever look? Even when you're yourself, and you go and you look for the weather, mm -hmm. Six Nations is is void. Mm -hmm. I go to look for the drought conditions. Six Nations is a void. I don't care what you look for. Six, everybody else is on there. Like, why can't Ontario just like it's a few more inches on the map? Yeah, yeah. So nobody is interested in monitoring our our place. No. And, and sometimes there's there's we should as a people be able to do that ourselves. Yeah. But you know, certain elements don't want to observe the natural yeah. environment. Right? Yeah. They don't understand the 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 need to be able to. Uh, Really work with it. And there's not nothing saying that you can't have these things. It's the way you have them. Yeah, that's right. And I mean, that's a whole community planning strategy, right? It has to start there. So maybe we'll get there one day, Terry Lynn. I, don't know. I hope so. <laughs> um, I know what I wanted to ask about, too, is it, I found it so fascinating that you um, were, were, as an educator, were using those skills that you have to, to have this land-based learning environment at your place. Can you talk about that? Yeah, I, I, um, with COVID, you know, a lot of the kids couldn't go to school mm -hmm. in the province, but we were really devastated and have been devastated on Six Nations. The kids left school March 12th, last of 2020. It's Mar March 12th, 2021 is come and gone, and they're still out of school. And a lot of people don't realize our kids have been out of school for over a year. Yeah. So that was, and I was very worried about that because my grandson was finishing grade seven at the time. So he... So the important part of the new learning that you usually do in the third term, he missed it all from his teacher. Then he goes through on Zoom for a whole year of grade eight. Now he's got to go to high school next year off reserve. So he's effectively had two years without school. And he's going to go into a classroom with kids who have been in school for two years. So that's effectively four years of learning that he's now going to be out. Yeah. So I'm really concerned about that. And I thought, okay, well, I got to get this kid at least to have a routine. So we opened a school. And I call it a garden school because the majority of my grandchildren are little. And with COVID and all that stuff, we had to keep under 10 and all those other kind of rules they had. So we, we did that. And uh, I opened the agricultural, well, it's a, I call it a garden school. Um, and basically what I do is, as an Indigenous educator, as an Indigenous teacher, grandma, part of our role is to make sure kids understand life right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, so I want my grandchildren to be able to find water to drink. I want them to be able to grow food if they need to. I want them to be able to build a structure for, to house them. Like those are the basic needs, right? Mm -hmm. I, you know, I was teaching them two weeks ago how to skin a deer. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like there are certain things you, you can, basic skills, we call them, right? Yeah. And we never know by the learning of that or the experience of that, what is going to trigger in that kid. And then where that's going to lead to. Yeah. Right. And with all of our, like, you know, my twins, mm -hmm. like whatever would think that they would become the great silversmiths and artists that they are today by something or other down here when they were young triggered that. Mm -hmm. So I just wanted them to have that, um, what I call, I don't use the word land-based learning like they mm -hmm. do in the Western Yeah, teachers. that's where I heard it from, land-based learning. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I um before land-based learning, or whatever they call it, even started, I, I, I'm actually a published author on culturally appropriate Aboriginal education for kids. Um, 
when this whole ballroom role was starting. Um, I never liked the term for it. So I combined land relations because I said, it's not a base, right? It's not stay there. It's not stagnant. Um, the whole point is that you have to have a land relation. Yes, that's a right. A relationship to the land and w everything that's in it, okay? Mm -hmm. Even if you don't do anything with it, mm -hmm. but you just have to be able to relate. And so that's kind of what I, I work on with the kids is having that land relationship with them and I always stop, is this a good thing? Are we doing a good thing? Would you like to be treated this way? Would you not like to be, you know? Those mm -hmm. simple things. And the kids will understand that. And they'll say, well, do we need that piece of junk? <laughs> do we need another piece of plastic in our life, guys? No. Mm -hmm. You've mm -hmm. got one of those. We've mm -hmm. got, you know. So just trying to help them get a better understanding about the choices at a young age that they make that will affect us, that effectively got us into all the problems that we're looking at today. Yeah. Right? So we really try to... Uh, promote those, no, do not bring any garbage. Like, 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 let's try really hard to, to, you know, recycle and reuse and do all those things that we're supposed to be doing. So that's kind of what we do. I, I do teach the basic reading and math, you know, but if I don't get a lesson in reading that day, it mm -hmm. doesn't bother me because mm -hmm. I know that they felt the wind on their face today. Yeah. And that was just as important. And how are they, how are they um, processing it and reacting to this new type of learning than their, their regular school? There, uh, it was really strange to watch them over the year. And I never really, because I was kind of like at the beginning, oh my God, what did I sign up for? I got these eight and seven of them are under the age of seven. <laughs> right? And uh, That sounds fun. <laughs> yeah. You know, the older one, he would help me as much as he could, but, you know, he would get frustrated too. But what I found is that uh, um, I, I think I taught them how to unplug yeah. I think I've taught them how to settle down and chill a little bit. Yeah. And uh, how to just go out and play and do, you know. I, I've taught them, I think, how to respond to what what's the feeling right now. Mm -hmm. Right? You know, if we can't settle, then I can't do it right now. Right? Mm -hmm. And I can understand that. Mm -hmm. So we're pretty open to let them kind of make their choices around a lot mm -hmm. of stuff, but I say, hey, I got to go and get something in the garden. Come on, you're coming. And then they know there's no choice there. Yeah. That there's a certain amount of time that they have to come and help with that. Because I say, remember, we all eat. Yeah. When we all eat, we all participate. And it's funny because of the eight, I have one that I can see the gift. There's the one that never leaves. Yeah. He will stay with me till, the, till, I'm, till I leave that garden. Mm-hmm. Right? And, which is funny, eh? So. And what's the, what's the types of things that they've really you know, been wondered by, you know, that they've... They're... Frogs. Yeah. <laughs> well, they're right by frog pond, right? Yes. <laughs> Frogs are like, and, and the wildlife, mm. right? Mm -hmm. um, we've really done a lot of uh, trying for them, like, to observe yeah. things in nature. So, like, in the fall, we studied, um, like, right, you know, August, September, we were studying the flowers, like the wild flowers, the, you know, the goldenrod and, and, and all the, the, you know, the, the chicory, the blue devil, all those different, mm -hmm. we, you know, they could walk around and they're like five years old and they could tell you 10 of them. Wow. You know, and just amazing. because through our walks every time, what is it, you know, like that. And we, you know, if I knew the Mohawk, they learned the Mohawk. If I didn't, then they'd learn the English. Right. Mm -hmm. So, but they're getting observant. And so then after a while I would, it was funny because we always have a rope and we always, you know, hang on to the rope and go just so not chasing everybody. But then when they get to be, can I be the leader? Yeah. Then they're, then they're walking along and they're, huh? What is that? <laughs> <laughs> you know, they're starting to point these things out. Yeah. You know, and they're pointing out what they can grab and they can eat. They yeah. know, like, they'll stop at that one bush that they know that they can eat that berry from, you know. And yeah. then they started to observe frogs, which was a big thing. 
So that became our challenge. Every time when we walked by the pond, we would shh, be real quiet and we'd sneak up and they would count. And so far, our, our record is 20 frogs around, you know, my little pond at my mm -hmm. place. It's not a very big pond and just going around half of it, we counted 20, 20 frogs one day. Wow. Right? And so just that just tells you how clean of an environment we still have where if we can see 20 frogs, they've observed snakes even like milk snakes and ribbon snakes like kinds that you just don't see every day yeah and all the birds that they can name you know so they're really aware of their environment mm -hmm. um they see the eagle and my neighbor um he hunts all the time and he's always throwing his deer carcass in the back and they'll they know oh stan must have threw a deer out you know <laughs> this is what they'll say yeah. you know and they'll yeah. want to go back and see because they'll see the eagle fly over and they know the eagle's coming because he wants that deer that's got thrown out in that same spot that yeah. high right yeah so they learn these things mm -hmm. and they know how things work together and how people can influence what's happening that's amazing that you've given them this gift and opportunity to learn during this time. Mm -hmm. I know I see some of the pictures on the on the Facebook and I think, I want to go to Terrilyn's school. Mm -hmm. <laughs> well, I try to just like go in reverse and, and, and you know, you know, kids were saying, oh, do you want this? I got some stuff. Do you want it? You want to have this for the kids and that? You know, and a lot of times I just kind of say, you know, not really, you know, mm -hmm. because I don't entertain children and I don't think I should have to. Mm -hmm. I want them to learn how to play. Yeah. Right. And so they've gotten really good at playing each with each other. They've gotten really good at learning how to climb trees and dig in the mud. And, the, you know, they come home mm -hmm. and get dirty, pretty dirty some days. Mm -hmm. But they've learned how to interact and socialize with each other. And I think that's really important. And because I think our modern society caters to children too much. Do they miss electronics? Um, I let them use them because we still have to, I still make them as much as possible use, go on their Zoom. They mm -hmm. have a Zoom maybe once a day. Oh, yeah. You know, I still, you know, because unfortunately the uh, powers that be threaten you with things like CAS if you don't put your kids on Zoom. And I thought, if you knew what they were doing today, you would see how stupid it is for them to go on a Zoom that they have no motivation to learn. Right. Yeah. It's, it's really not a, a and Zoom kid friendly. fatigue for kids. Yeah. I'm sure that kids are affected by Zoom. Fatigue it is not kid friendly like at all. Adults are. Well, I remember um, one time you had this gardening book. Is your book getting bigger now? Of, oh, of yeah, your, it's my journal. Yeah. Yeah. Your, your maps. You had maps in there and everything. Yeah. Every year I kind of um, I'm getting better at plotting. Um, my planting times, you yeah. know, uh, I follow Pleiades across the sky, which a lot of people follow the moon, but the reality for Haudenosaunee's is, is Pleiades is, mm -hmm. is the, the agricultural cycle is the stars that we follow that mm -hmm. denote when the seasons change that denote for its position when we're entering new ones, you know, the moons are there and they do have power and they show us, show us, uh, within that change of that season when to better time things. Mm -hmm. But you know, you look at most most moon calendars, you'll see new moon plantings and they'll do it for the whole year. Like who's gonna germinate beans in December? Mm -hmm. But it'll be on that calendar. Mm -hmm. You live in a place, I guess, that has that, <laughs> you know? So mm -hmm. they don't, they're not tuned to our specific geography, like mm -hmm. location, right? So. So what kinds of um, things can people, expect to find when they go to your website um i really get lazy on my website just mm -hmm. because i get frustrated with it and, and the reason i get frustrated with it is because i'm frustrated with the internet in my community it really mm -hmm. does not work well so i'm getting halfway through something and it just crashes yeah um so that's always it's been a real challenge uh i do try to 
post articles like I do write for the newspaper and I'm the newspaper is actually putting a, a book together of all of, they just went through um, a like four seasons and they selected four columns out of there and they're putting it together in a book which is kind of a little bit of a resource mm -hmm. um, and use using that and uh, but I think uh, I would post some of those stories of it could be on black walnuts. It could be on, you know, anything that I happen to be doing that day that I'm inspired mm. to write about. Um, oh, nice. But I say that's the big thing that's the challenge. Uh, I do try to sell seed, seeds, but literally I was sold out like within a month. Oh, wow. Within yeah. a month. By the time I put them on right after January, by the end of January, they were gone. Like what I thought I could give out and still have enough for my own community and my own garden. Mm -hmm. So this year I've kind of set as a goal is to really increase the thing the amount that I have mm -hmm. because they are very popular and it is, you know, it's, it's pretty expensive and people say, Oh geez, they're $5. And I'll say, yeah, you get out there and crawl around on your hands and knees when it's a hundred degrees. And then you tell me that that's not worth $5. Mm -hmm. You know, like mm -hmm. people just, I just want to shake when I, when they <laughs> grumble about the price of something that somebody has created with their own hands or done yeah. with their own hands. They yeah. give your head a shake people, mm -hmm. right? You know, learn to value what's really valuable right? yeah and and though these are non-gmo seeds right yeah these, these are, are like all her my, my heritage seeds heritage. I, I, I work really hard to maintain specifically the seeds from the six nations community that were gifted to me through my my family and other like families locally in the community um i have found other haudenosaunee seeds from other communities but i really focus on six Nations stuff this is mm -hmm. ours we mm -hmm. want to keep it going uh and then i um I tinker in corn breeding, mm -hmm. right? Make, because as a seed keeper, um, you know, at one time we had 100,000 varieties of, of corn. Why don't we have 100,000 today? Well, you know why? Because there's hardly any seed keepers left. Mm -hmm. of the, through the territories, I, there's l less than one hand of, wow. of true seed keepers throughout all the Haudenosaunee territories. Wow. Right. What can be done, do you think, to increase that number? Well, I think this is where, like... You're not going to get a high school student to go grow a garden. Mm -hmm. I don't care what anybody says, get youth interesting. They don't happen that way, mm -hmm. right? There has to be something that makes it interesting to them. Yeah, when they're in the third grade, they might be interested in planting a bean seed or a kindergarten. But once they get to high school, they need a little bit more meat to it. So I think those simple things of, did you ever hear of genetics? Did you ever hear of what, what it means to cross-bead or cross-pollinate? Maybe get them interested in the higher level things yeah. that, believe it or not, Indigenous people knew all about when they first start figuring out how to grow corn. Yeah. Because it was a grass. And we yeah. genetically modified it from a grass to the cob of corn that we have today. Mm -hmm. And today, the Haudenosaunee, northern flint corns, still has no archaeological link to any place but ourselves. Wow. People so just keep saying, well, we can't prove it yet. <laughs> But, you know, mm -hmm. you've had it for over a thousand years. Yeah. And a thousand years ago, we also got the great law. Hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, like maybe there's some significance in those things that happened. But we don't, you can't prove to me that it came from the Pueblos or what they say the southwestern portion of Mexico. Mm -hmm. That's, you know, the two places of origin, maybe for our eight row northern Flint corns. 
They yeah. can't, pr science can't prove that yet. But maybe a high school, you know, it's particularly a, an indigenous youth might say, yeah, I want to look into that. Yeah. That's pretty high level thinking. Wouldn't it be great if we could figure out the connection? So I think we have to not just say, oh, go, you know, use them as cheap labor. Mm -hmm. Use them, use their young minds that are a little bit more creative yeah. and, and, and in creative ways. And inquisitive. Yeah. Yeah. Give them something to think about. Mm-hmm. Well, I hope we can get to that point and do that be before long because, um, you know, we seeds, we need seeds. Yeah. They're so important. Oh, yes. yeah. Well, seeds are the basis of our lives, right? Yeah. Seeds, food, we don't have them, we don't live. Do you think that we have enough um, flint, white flint corn growing in the community for our community? Or do we need more? For the ambition of the people in our community, yes. Mm, okay. Right now, the ambition isn't as much... Um, what, believe it or not, um, my daughter, she has a Yueco restaurant there oh, in the so village. Good too. So during the wintertime, I've always got the wood stove going. So all winter long, I'd been buying corn with her. Sometimes I do white corn. Sometimes I do the sweet, diga lagi, the black corn. Sometimes I do a red corn, you know, whatever I happen to be doing. She'd pick it up the next day and put it to the menu, right? Mm -hmm. You know, and then uh, she says, then she took, had some corn there. She says, Ma, I need some ashes. So I begged up couple of cups I taught the kids hey we gotta get we gotta start um shift some ashes today so another task this is what I need to do as an adult so you need to come and help me and learn and of course it was great fun of course they had ashes everywhere right mm -hmm. and their hair and all <laughs> over the room but they had great fun mm -hmm. right and then I said don't you dare throw out that charcoal because we're going to do something with those those are important you know and so they cleaned the ashes and we put them in a little bag a couple cups each and I gave a, a bunch to my daughter and said here put these in the freezer and uh because, like the science behind it, and people don't think about it, is that ash gives off carbon. Yeah. Right? And it dissipates in the air. So somebody will go and get some ashes from somebody because very few people, in fact, have wood stoves anymore on the mm -hmm. reserve. Like at one time, everybody had one. Mm -hmm. Now it's the norm that hardly anybody does because it affects the housing insurance, and you just can't. It's crazy, right? Mm -hmm. So not that many people have have. Uh, wood stoves to get their own ash and they don't have good ash they don't have good trees so they're not using the proper kind of burning the proper kind of wood to get the proper kind of ash okay so I bagged them up give them to her and she took them and threw them at the front there and uh, didn't think about it because she wanted them to do some lying next thing somebody says can I buy one of these <laughs> I got some corn at home but I don't have no ash and she never thought yeah okay what do you got three bucks so she tells it and then pretty soon they were gone and I think I took four so yeah. she says, can you bring us some more ashes? I said, you done already? She goes, uh, we sold it. <laughs> I said, well, yeah. yeah. Okay, I can see that. Yeah. So that basic um, little resource, an ash, is a commodity, you know, that I'm just burning it in my wood stove. Now I never throw ashes because, you know, I use it to lime my corn. I use it to fertilize my garden. I use it to, as a pesticide. I use it to tan my hides. I mean, there's just so many things that you can do with ash to clean yeah. your, to clean uh, the outhouse. Like it's just got so many uses that you never throw out ash. In fact, yeah. you never have enough of it, Yeah. you know? And so I did that and I was surprised every time I bag up a bit, send it there, she sells it. Wow. And it's just because people end up, they'll go and pick a few, you know, braids of corn and they're all happy, but then, oh, geez, now what do I do? Maybe after this podcast, we will see Ash at Walmart. 
What do you think? <laughs> well, I certainly hope not. <laughs> I certainly say, hope not. When they find out it's a commodity, right? Yeah, that's true. <laughs> but but yeah, um, uh, I really miss that whole process of of all day cooking, all day making the corn soup mm -hmm. because you really appreciate that bowl that yep. you're going to eat at. Well, see, people don't understand too, and it really irks me. You know, you see there's all kinds of videos on how to make corn soup and all these things and, oh, here's how you lie it and stuff. But, you know, one of the key elements is that, you know, they've done it, they've, they've uh, cooked it, and now they're washing it, and they haven't waited. You know, like, you, you lied it today, you cooked it in that ash, you let it soak in that, and tomorrow you wash it. Mm -hmm. Not today, mm -hmm. tomorrow, mm -hmm. you know, because... If you do not let the corn sit in that ash, that chemical reaction that creates that condition for the calcium to go sky right and all the vitamins, there's not, it's, it's a chemical process. Mm -hmm. It doesn't happen instantly. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So please, if anybody's listening, let your corn soak overnight in the ash mm. and then wash it the next day mm -hmm. if you want to have it. And I often wondered about why did grandma always just like, she'd always have it on big pot at the back of the stove mm -hmm. and then she'd sit it on the floor and the next day she'd wash it. And I thought, yeah. like, why didn't she wash it tonight? You know, yeah. because our people have such taboos and things about, yeah. oh, don't leave food out and, you know, so, you know, all these different kinds of conditions that come from our culture and things. And so I ran into an indigenous woman from the University of Mexico when I was at a UN function, and she happened to be a food chemist. Oh, wow. And I say, can you tell me why my grandma always said to leave it to the next day? Yeah. And she said, because it's a chemical reaction. And she just went, named it all like nothing. She says, this is how many hours this take, this is how with this. She said, yes, you will get the nutritional value that skyrockets on those charts, but not if you don't let it sit in that liquid so after it turns orange and the and the um, cover comes off you still leave it in it has it. to sit for hours wow yeah hours in that because it takes she said it still has to soak into in like a corn itself the kernel is pretty poor it's pretty hard yeah, and that hard. liquid's got to get through it and just think of it trying mm -hmm. to seep through there it takes it a long time yeah. so she says that's really critical and important that she says, yeah. you can have nice corn soup and it may not taste any different or look any different. She says, but, you know, the nutritional value is not going to be there mm -hmm. that your people would have relied on in days gone by. That yeah. would have been so important to, for, yeah. to maintain. Yeah. She says, and really to some extent, she says, it wasn't just the nixilization process when the people got, there's a specific disease you get when you don't lie the corn. She says, all of that is part, right, down in Kentucky and Tennessee through the hard times when all those people were getting sick and dying from eating our white corns mm -hmm. because they weren't, they weren't uh, lying it or nixalizing or whatever that word is, like, mm -hmm. process, right? She says, all those things can, uh, and wow. they were eating, like, on a daily basis, a whole bunch every day. That's all they're eating. Wow. Right, so she says things, you got to be careful. Yeah, you got to take your time when you're making the corn soup, mm -hmm. for yeah. sure. But there's nothing like it. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Well, anything else that we didn't talk about oh, that you wanted to share? I guess um, the biggest topic and the biggest thing, trend, so to speak, now is what people call food security, right? Yeah. And I think it's it's an important important topic, whether you call it food security or food, uh, what is it, sovereignty? Yeah. 
uh, different people use different terms. But at the end of the day, we, you know, if we look at the United Nations and we look at some of their definitions, um, you know, they, they talk about having food that's locally available, like mm -hmm. within 100 miles, right? That's an affordable price, that everybody can afford it, that meets your nutritional daily requirements, so it's good for you, right? Uh, and it's what they say, culturally appropriate. Yeah. And so when countries sit down and develop their definition of food security, right, they look at what the UN is suggesting. They don't have to do it, but they look at what they suggest and they create them. And believe it or not, the one thing culturally appropriate is the one part of the definitions that majority of the countries around the world leave out of mm -hmm. their own country's definition. Mm -hmm. They want it cheap. They want it local, right? You know, they want it nutritious, but they don't give a rip whether. So if you, you know, make some kind of gruel out of rice, that they don't care if you feed it to Alaskan people mm -hmm. or people mm -hmm. from very different cultures. Mm -hmm. Right? So we have to think about that. So that critical part, that culturally appropriate, becomes very important in our food, in our, in our, our whole concept or idea of moving foods forward. Right, yeah. or keeping ourselves healthy. And if we take that of our diet or 100% of our diet and, you know, we think about all the foods that we have in it, well, you know, 10% of the stuff we eat is just like basically crap, mm -hmm. right? 10% of easily of our diet does nothing nutritionally for us. It doesn't do anything but put weight on, right? Mm -hmm. It's just there. And empty. tastes good. <laughs> yeah. It usually tastes good, but it's the empty calories. Yeah. So 10% of that, right? So now we're down to 90% of a of the stuff that may help us. Of that 90%, easily 30% of it is, is in uh, meat, fish, poultry, right? Mm -hmm. Easily. So me, I'm fortunate, I'm happy because I look at that 30%, well, my guys keep our freezer full of Tindanega, pickerel, pike, you know, we, we have our own fish mm -hmm. system because they belong to fishing societies and hunting societies. We have elk and moose and all those things, so we never buy um, food from the grocery store. Uh, last year, my daughter, daughter started raising pigs because we still like bacon. Right? Yeah. You know what I mean? So uh, I have the chickens and the eggs, so we're still secure there. We don't need yeah. the outside world to do anything. Yeah. Right? So now, of that 90, that 30%, we're all down to 60% of our diet. Of that 60%, if we were really trying to follow our indigenous diets, we would find that at least half of that 60% we should be able to find in the bush, mm -hmm. right? We should be able to find growing in our, in our backyards. Yeah. So that means we're actually only going to have to grow 30%. Yeah. And the 30% that we grow are the things that are culturally appropriate to us, which means corn. If yeah. I was Asian, it would mean rice, right? Mm -hmm. If I was uh, European, it would mean wheat. Depending mm -hmm. on where you come in the world, what's that 30% is culturally appropriate to you? And for us, it's corn. Yeah. So that's important. That should be in my garden. It should be a big part of my garden because that should be 30% of my diet, right? Yeah. You know, and we add the squashes to that and we add a lot of the beans, which, you know, cross over into the protein level. But those are the things I got to con concentrate on growing because those are the things that are, are there, right? All the others... Yes, we talk about potatoes, but they grow in the backyard, mm -hmm. wild. The Jerusalem artichoke, they're a wild one. We don't have to worry about that because it's already there. We just, we don't have it. Well, then we go get some and we put it in and within a couple of years, you got tons. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? It's because they, they grow very rapidly. 
you know, the sunflowers and the seeds and the nuts, you add all those things in there. So there's really a very small portion that we really have to grow. So when people, you know, think, oh, how can you grow your own food? Well, just analyze that 100% and see how really small it really is. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And with Tanya and her restaurant, that's one of the things we're trying. I'm producing a lot of the things that she's using or we're finding indigenous growers to do that. Um, but it's opening our community up to, oh, my God, I just ate rabbit. I never ate rabbit before. Even though she's an indi- they're indigenous people, they're telling me I never had rabbit before. We were just it was talking, really good. We were just talking about rabbit not too long ago. Yeah, and it's crazy, you know. That, yeah. So now people are knowing they go in there, they're not going to get a hamburger. No, because it's just not what she does. You know, mm-hmm. she says no. I, but she's trying to show the community you can indigenize, you can gourmet turn our indigenous food into gourmet level quality food. Yeah. Right. Yeah. If you just you know give it a try, and it's healthy very extreme she has so many people in her restaurant now she has a following she has people that come there every day for their lunch and their supper i like how uh, how she puts on the facebook the menu for that day yes yeah then then you know or she puts it on the day before and then you can say oh i want to go tomorrow because she's going to be having this yeah 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 and you see those things but the thing is it's basically gluten-free and that's one of the big big key uh, keys to a lot of the men that are eating because a lot of our men our population is getting older their doctors are saying hey start eating gluten-free and they don't even know what that means mm-hmm. they can't even figure it out so they go there now they're oh my god i can eat here mm-hmm. yeah <laughs> right? so that's been really a godsend and they're starting to be able to because she's trying to teach them to turn indigenous 100 percent overnight she says you're not going to do it mm-hmm. she says it the food that you eat today has created an addiction for you yeah. You go and eat indigenous food, then an hour later you're looking, where's my sweets? I got to yeah. run to McDonald's and get a sundae. Or yeah. where's my salt? I need some fries. Yeah. So she says those addictions in our current diet, we have to let go of slowly. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So that's what she's trying to teach people. Because mm-hmm. you see, she don't have a, she doesn't like having salt and peppers out and things like that. You got to try to, they don't use white sugar. You got to, yeah. you know, it's got to be maple syrup or it's, it's got to be some of the things that we have. Yeah. I'm so glad that she's there anyway. <laughs> yeah, it really, it's really created a, a talking, a place to talk and for people to mm-hmm. start to get some ideas on their own. Yeah, for sure. Mm-hmm. Well, this has been such a great conversation. Oh, yes. <laughs> I've just, my ears are just really um, enjoyed what I've been hearing. So um, I want to say Yahweh to you for coming and sharing with us on our podcast. I'll let you know when it's released so you okay. can you can tell everybody to listen. Uh, on this podcast, we've been talking with Terry Lynn Brandt, Salazala, seed keeper in the community of Six Nations of the Grand River. Salazala can be found on the web at mohawkseedkeeper.com. Yahweh Terry Lynn for sharing your knowledge with us on the Road to Your Name podcast. Oh, thank you. Yahweh. Yahweh, thank you for listening to this episode of the Yohate Nega Sunha, The Road to Your Name podcast, which has been produced by Aboriginal Legal Services and hosted by me, Lisa Van Every. There are 10 episodes in this podcast series. Let's meet again on the next episode. If you would like to learn more about our organization, Aboriginal Legal Services, and the programs and services we provide, please visit us at our new website at www.aboriginallegal.ca.
And if you feel inclined and would like to make a donation, you can click on the word donate located on the bottom of the page of our newly updated website. You can also visit us on Facebook at Aboriginal Legal Services Toronto, Canada. This has been the Yohate Negasuna, The Road to Your Name podcast series. Yeah.